Good morning. Uh, for those of you who are visiting uh, this morning, um, I'm kind of like a guest speaker here. Uh, I speak sometimes. Uh, it's been, I think, two weeks, three weeks since I've spoken, and then before that it was like a month. Um, but no, uh, it's very, very encouraging to just get to get to be together. Um, and the lesson this morning uh, has been on my heart for a long time. Um, really came from uh, reading the Old Testament last year, pretty early on in the year, and there were some verses that stuck out to me that um, we'll be looking at in just a moment. If you'd like to open your Bible to Deuteronomy 19, uh, we're going to start there, even though Ephesians 4 is on the board. When you read the New Testament epistles, starting in Romans, you'll notice as you read them that uh, they're all very personal. They're not just, the writers aren't just talking at the churches or just mentioning general things that seem to be good, although in a lot of those epistles there are a lot of general truths within them. Uh, they're very personal. Like Paul will talk about himself, he'll talk directly to the church. But with that, talking very directly to the churches in a very personal way, uh, the writers of the New Testament letters always address what the need of the moment was. Like they always were very thoughtful about what does this church need right now, right? That's kind of like what this lesson is. Um, as this thought has been in my mind, it's grown a lot. And this is one of those lessons that, uh, at least for me, might be one of, the, one of the lessons that most touches the question, what does this church need to hear the most right now? And I always try to think about that question in my lessons, but this particularly, I think, will be um, touching that idea. Uh, and you'll notice the title of the lesson is Striving to the Fullness of God's Glory. Really, the thought process uh, pushing this lesson is that this church has changed a lot since I first came here. Uh, I think we've been spiritually growing. Uh, there's also new Christians here. People are moving into the area um, and I think all of that God hopes will continue by his grace and power to, to continue forward, right? But with growth, there are also dangers. And I think there are things that we would be amiss in not understanding and taking heed of. So this is going to be kind of a somber lesson, um, but I think it's a very important lesson for us. So really we're going to be looking at Israel in the Old Testament and ultimately how, how they failed, to grow into the intention that God had for them and learning from some principles of why they failed so that we can then, like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, learn from their example and take positive lessons from that. So Ephesians 4.15, the reason I have that on the board um, underneath the title, in Ephesians 4, that, that section, Paul is exhorting the Ephesian church to see that the purpose that God has in his mind for his body locally is that we grow in every aspect into the fullness of Christ. Every aspect. That God fully intends to equip his saints. He has equipped us to attain to that glory. But there, there's an obligation that we have to share God's hope in that and his attention and to work with God toward that intention. So that, this is a lesson to help equip us to that. So Deuteronomy 19, 8 through 10. Uh, the first point is really that Israel had unattained potential. Uh, this is a few verses that are so easy to like miss what's being said. And so I want to kind of slow down 
and understand what exactly is going on here with why we would look at this particular section. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, 8 through 10. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, just as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land which he promised to give your fathers, if you carefully observe all this commandment, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance and blood guiltiness beyond you. If you look at the section heading for chapter 19, it might say cities of refuge. The idea is Israel was, uh, was now on the border of Canaan, this land that was promised to Abraham. This is a really exciting time, right? Like the nation was about to go into this land and they were about to expand and get their territories. And Moses is telling them about these six cities you'll see here that were being set up as places where if somebody had accidentally killed somebody, they could go to one of these cities and find refuge. They were like safe havens. And these would have been Levitical cities. God's holy people would have dwelt in these cities. And you would have stood fair trial and would have been able to find safety for crimes that, although you would have been guilty of something serious, you would have been able to be absolved from the death penalty, right, and live in one of these cities. The idea is it would have kept the nation pure. It would have established a greater sense of justice and relief and mercy, uh, and it would have made people feel secure and safe in the nation. In chapter 19, 8 through 10, what Moses is saying is, besides these six cities, if you love the Lord your God and you walk in his ways, God will give you three more cities on top of these six. The interesting thing about that, that never happened. Those three extra cities, it never happened. Not even in Solomon's time, when the nation's borders were being pushed to the limit of how far they would ever reach, not even in Solomon's time, did the nation expand enough to put in these three extra cities? You think about what Jesus said about a single lily. If you remember, he said that Solomon in all his glory was not even arrayed like one single lily. I think the idea of what Jesus is saying is one lily at least is able to grow to its full potential. Solomon's kingdom was hardly a glimpse into what could have been with Israel, right? What could have been. Instead of it being the end of the glory of Israel, it could have actually been a whole new beginning. So there were, there were actually plans that God had for the nation to continue to expand them further that were really never attained to. And I want you to think about that, this question. Could that be us? Like really, could, it, could that be who we are? Ephesians 4 also mentions that God has given elders, shepherds, to equip the saints. I just want to ask, like, how do you think about that? Like, is it possible for this church to have elders one day? You see, because Israel could have easily looked at this promise and thought, like, well, that's just not possible. You know, it can't, can't happen. Just another one of those things in the Old Testament that's never going to happen, right? But let me ask you this. Does God ever promise something that he's not fully intending to perform? That he hasn't made every provision to equip his people to accomplish? Is that the God we serve? If we're going to grow as a church, we need to see the full intention of God's promises, not as something far away or too difficult or unattainable, 
because of who God is, we need to see those things as something near. Something that can happen, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And you notice in verse 9 that this was a conditional promise. You notice there's two conditions, really. See, the first one is to carefully observe God's commands, to walk in his ways, right? And the second is to love God, which is said a lot in Deuteronomy, by the way, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, That's like the grand idea of Deuteronomy that Moses was commending to the people. Um, God's commands, they invite us into his glory. If we love God, his commands are the invitation to come to know him and share with him all his thoughts, all his ways, all his glory. Um, And just like these cities would have been conditional in many ways, aren't elders really a conditional promise in some sense? Like obviously good qualified men who are willing to shepherd God's flock in a way that's really biblical, that doesn't just like magically happen, right? There is a condition on that where we need to learn to love God and to see the joys of walking in his ways. Think not seeing God's commands as just duties to be performed or as things to be accomplished, but rather as viewing God's love and being overwhelmed with God's love more and more. So really the, the principle the principle of this is we need to be seeking as much fellowship with God as he allows us to seek for. And in the New Testament context, we're invited to seek, again, like Ephesians 4, all components of his fullness. But for us, that requires community effort. Um, one application I want to make of this, uh, which doesn't seem directly relevant, I just want to put into your mind, how do we, how do we learn to like, love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? How do we get to a place of growth where instead of becoming content uh, with things just being a little bit better, we want to continue to crave more and more heights of growth into God's glory? How do we change our value system individually and keep a sober spiritual perspective of things that God has promised? It's prayer. You know, prayer is actually commanded directly like 18 times in the New Testament epistles. That's not counting, counting Jesus' commands to pray 18 times. There are over 20 examples of prayers in the epistles. Over 20 examples. And again, that's not counting Jesus' example of prayer. The majority of those prayers and the examples of those prayers are Paul praying for things related to congregations needing to grow. Those are the examples he gives. I think... One of the difficult things about the work here is sometimes I think those of us who don't have as much like physical ability to like do things can feel like we're less useful maybe in some ways. But that's such a wrong idea. The people who have the more freedom to pray the most are the most important people in this work. Um, and I, I really want to put into your mind as well how relevant this is to growth. We're studying 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday evenings. I mean, I would really encourage all of you to um, be present for just how encouraging those studies are. But we're, we're talking about King Saul, right? And that the nation was in a time of transformation and, like, pretty dramatic change. Um, 
So you've got Solomon's kingdom, obviously, which was as much as the, as the nation ever changed in a positive way. And just in your mind, where does something like that come from? Like, how does that, how does that happen? I mean, you have David, who was a man after God's own heart, and who was like a great warrior. He trusted God. He defeated Goliath, right? You've got those really visible things. But do you remember how 1 Samuel starts? You've got this distressed woman, overwhelmed with trouble. And this woman is just constantly pouring her heart out to God. And in God responding to her prayer came a son, who then became a prophet, who then anointed the king, who was also then a man of prayer. You know, sometimes I can focus so much in Scripture on, like, the bigger events, but what's hidden underneath all of those things is God responding to prayer. You know, the interesting thing about prayer is it's so easy to undervalue, but it is the most important discipline of our faith, the most important discipline, and it is a discipline. There's so much to learn about prayer, not just asking God for things or even just thanking God, We just need to love talking to God. And like every component of developing a clearer view of God, seeing more of God's beauty, David the man of prayer in Psalm 27 verse 4 said, I have asked one thing of the Lord and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple. If we're going to continue to grow as a congregation, we need to crave beholding the beauty of the Lord. Prayer is how we see the beauty of God. Christians in the book of Acts were devoted to prayer. Paul in the epistles would command Christians to be devoted to prayer. If we are going to continue to grow, prayer needs to be at the center of our faith. It needs to be a discipline that never falls to the wayside. It needs to be something we crave doing. We ought to just look for opportunities to even just spend some extra time in prayer in our minds, pouring our heart out to God, pouring our hearts out to God, just learning to love God deeply and becoming infatuated with God and being overwhelmed by his love and knowing that through prayer he will help us find security and peace and rest in his care as we seek him in that way. Um, And again, prayer is undergirding growth. There's one one last thing on that. This church, again, has been growing. But you know why that's happening? Uh, It's really not because of any person doing anything visibly. It's not because of sermons that get taught on Sunday. It's because of people who have been praying. Even before anyone ever started doing something that seemed to visibly impact growth, people were praying. And the reason why this church is what it is right now and why there's anything to thank God for in this church right now is because people were praying before those things ever started happening. All right. The next problem with Israel, turn to Joshua uh, 18, uh, verses 1 through 7. And as you can see, the idea is Israel lacked the motivation that they needed. Uh, And this is another surprising passage. You get to this place in Deuteronomy and, like, they're winning battle after battle. They're conquering the land of Canaan. And in one of these chapters, you've got a list of all the kings that they conquered. It's like, wow, that must have been the whole land of Canaan. I mean, like, it's like so many different kings. How could there be anyone left? 
Look at Joshua 18, 1 through 7. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tents of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. There remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, How long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide for yourselves three men from each tribe that I may send them, and that they may arise and walk through the land and write a description of it according to their inheritance, then they shall return to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall stay in its territory in the south, and the house of Joseph shall stay in their territory on the north. You shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. I will cast lots for you here before the Lord your God. For the Levites have no portion among you, because the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh also received their inheritance eastward beyond the Jordan, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. All right. So I want to just show you what this looks like. It's a little bit of a different map here. But before they ever went into Canaan, these lands, these portions of land on the east side of this Jordan River right here, they already conquered this and already had it, right? So this almost doesn't count in terms of what Joshua is talking about. So by this time in Joshua 18, you have half of Manasseh and Ephraim and Judah, and that's it. So really we're talking for between nine and a half tribes because two and a half have already inherited their land, right? Of nine and a half of the tribes of Israel to get this land, only two and a half had actually taken their land. And the rest of them are just lounging around, right? And I'm sure you can understand why they might become content. It's like, I mean, chapter 18, verse 1, the land was subdued before them. It's like, hey, we're here. And you imagine how exciting that would be. I mean, they just spent years wandering in a desert land, just eating manna the whole time. And now they're in this place of incredible abundance. Everything's lush. Everything's grown. They have all the land that they seem to need already. And the problem is they're not motivated to keep going and taking it all the way. We're still, this land right here, this is more of an ideal, right? So this Dan right here, that's not really real. That's just God's ideal measurement. Dan never took that land at all. They conquered one city in the north eventually, which was actually not God's plan at all. It was just because the people were so weak and so disconnected from anyone else. The Danites were just lazy and unfaithful. Uh, they were really uh, one of the most unfaithful tribes, if not the most unfaithful tribe from the get-go. So they, they weren't motivated. I want to show you two warnings that Moses gave in Deuteronomy that I think touch on the idea here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, 17 and 18, and one more in chapter 9. Deuteronomy is interesting. Moses, in warning them about what's about to happen, tells them multiple times, five times actually, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, he says, don't say this in your heart. So not don't say it with your mouth. He's saying, don't even let yourself think this because this is going to take you in a dangerous direction if you let this thought cultivate. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, 17 and 18. So he's talking about coming into the land and seeing the abundance uh, of the land. He said, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and, my st- and the strength of my hand made me this wealth but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And then if you look at chapter 9, 
verses 4 and 5, really referring to the fact that they weren't earning the land by their righteousness. He says, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into possessless land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And here's the really key thing. In order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the most fundamental parts of our faith is it's based on the precious value of God's promises. Do God's promises motivate you? You know, one of the symptoms of a lack of real faith is when the problem that we cry out to God to solve is solved, we lose motivation to go further, right? This church has been through difficult things. What happens when things become more peaceful and there's more unity, we, we, we enjoy being around each other? Do we lose our motivation to press even more diligently forward? You see, the freedom God gives us, the grace of, of the granting of that freedom, is designed to motivate us then to make affirmative applications after God has affirmatively taken us out of the position of burden, right? When we're taken out of our burden and we receive rest and cease, it shows that what we've said in our heart is, it's by my power, it's by my righteousness that these things have happened. Now, we would never say that with our mouth, would we, right? The evidence is in the lack of motivation. The reality is what Moses warned them of is exactly what happened. Here's a warning that I think we need to consider. We can easily be too distracted. I don't mean too busy. There's a difference between being really, really busy, which a lot of us are really busy. There's a difference between being really busy and being distracted. Um, God equips us through our faith to have all things under the umbrella of his overwhelming love. We can do everything that we do to his glory. Everything we do can be in remembrance of his greatness. It can humble us. We can be motivated to seek him. Or we can be busy while being distracted and the momentum of our worldly busyness captivates our mind into worldly thinking so much so that we're not considering the Lord. And then as soon as we have alone time, it's very difficult then to go quickly to prayer or quickly to scripture reading because I'm already so captivated and distracted by worldly thinking, spiritual things just really aren't even on my radar. I think this gets back to Moses saying, if you're careful, when you love someone, when you really love someone, you're careful to consider them and what would please them and what would draw the relationship closer together, right? I think to be careful to obey God is we want to consider what are things that God has said or promised that relate to what I'm going through, right? We might be like heavily burdened or pressed down or busy with certain things, but there are things that God has said that can stay with us. Just like what Jesus said in the wilderness when he's being tempted by Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
Love creates not just the discipline of being focused on God, the discipline of prayer, but the discipline of wanting to maintain an understanding of God that will help my understanding of him grow through his spoken word, right? Um, Turn to Philippians chapter 2, 17 through 18. I think another application of this briefly um, is in the Philippian church. We're going to go here for the next point eventually as well. The Philippians had elders and deacons. It says that in the first few verses to the Philippian church and also the elders and the deacons who are there. And for the Philippians, Paul wasn't writing to them like, wow, you have elders and deacons, you've arrived. Now you can finally just rest on yourselves and enjoy this wonderful achievement that God has finally granted you. It's not, not even the tone even slightly, it's, it's the opposite. It's a new beginning. Now that you have elders and deacons, now you can really begin pursuing the heights of the gospel through that. Uh, Philippians 2, 17 through 18, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So the idea of being distracted. Being distracted can really demotivate you from pursuing something, right? Like, if I'm pursuing anything in life and I'm letting, like, everything else take my view away from it, probably not going to achieve what I initially may have hoped I would achieve with that goal or with that hope, right? Um, Maturity, generally, even in the world in its most simple terms, maturity learns the value of sacrificing personal wants for greater needs. Can you imagine if somebody grows up and they never learn, they never learn, to see the value in sacrificing their personal wants for a need. That's when somebody goes to college and they totally fail. They're overwhelmed, they're missing classes, they're not doing their work. Those are the kind of people you've got to constantly be on. You've got to just constantly remind them, like whipping a slave, do the work, do the work, right? Um, We can't be that way with God, right? Maturity in faith learns the value of sacrificing personal wants for greater needs. That is the effect of grace. A symptom of really not understanding God's love, not seeing his grace clearly, is I never really learned to sacrifice personal wants for greater spiritual needs. Then the needs of the church never get addressed. People suffer spiritually and nobody knows it. Everything just kind of looks like it's okay. People smile. But nobody's actually addressing the real needs. Nobody's actually developing deeper spiritual relationships. That's the problem with Israel. You remember there arose another generation right after that one that didn't know the Lord or his works at all. They're just too busy with their lives in Canaan to teach their children to develop spiritual relationships and to commend the deeper lessons to others, right? They were too distracted. Another thing, too, is they were just, they would focus on the events, like God is very kind in taking a zoomed-out view of Israel. So we get to see their grander achievements, but when we see the transition into Judges, they clearly were overlooking the littler things, right? Again, maturity in faith chooses by grace, not by obligation or just thinking, well, I know I have to. No, when we're overwhelmed by God's love, anything that touches our faith, 
whether it's a sacrifice of time or energy or thought, whatever it is, when I sacrifice to the Lord and I know it's in faith because of my understanding of his love, it's refreshing and rejuvenating, whereas for someone who's practicing God's will without faith will be worn out and discouraged and then they'll go into the world to find their refuge and relief from the things that they're uh, suffering through sacrificing for the Lord. One, one last thing. Paul wanted them to rejoice in this. We need to learn to have joy in serving the de- development of the faith of others. It's alarming when elders and their work consist of keeping the building, its property, organizing the Bible classes, and making sure the assembly is orderly and well-organized. Good things, right? Good things. But none of those things touch on what Paul is saying here, right? We have to learn to rejoice in serving and sacrificing ourselves for the development of the faith of others. If we can learn to rejoice, like Paul is saying here, and share in that joy, men will become elders here who are able to lead this flock, like the Philippi church, into greater heights of maturity and glory. But we have to learn, we have to. How do we rejoice in the Lord while sacrificing ourselves and suffering for the development of the faith of others? We've got to focus on the spiritual condition of our brethren and learn to have that as our focus. Um, For a lot of us, that may mean not just coming to church here, right? There are a lot of people here who, they'll come here for worship, but are you focusing on more than that, serving the faith of your brethren, right? We've got to take our faith to the place that God hopes. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 31, the next point. Uh, They lacked grit, uh, kind of a strange term. Um, the idea is, though, Israel really, they were cowards because of their lack of faith. They didn't have the fortitude, the strength that God's grace gives to address the deeper problems that were always there in their nation. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, I'm not going to read this, but in 31 verses 20 and 21, Everything's exciting. God's blessing his people. They're at the border of Canaan, new generation, and God says, you know what's about to happen? I know at the end of verse 21, God says, I know the intent that's developing in their heart today. And this intent hidden in their hearts will be the very reason this nation is going to fall completely and be destroyed. What a downer. (laughs) What a downer. You imagine Moses' excitement, like, here we are on the border of Canaan. This is so exciting. And God says, I'm sorry to spoil the fun, but it's all just, it's all fake. Underneath it all, there is evil that is going to take over this nation. Turn to Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua was actually standing with Moses when God said those things. Moses was about to die when he, when he heard those things from God and reaffirmed them to the people. And now here Joshua is about to die. Just like that was Moses' final interaction with God and then with the people. Joshua's final interaction with the people, at the beginning of this chapter, he affirms all these great things that God has done for them. Because again, it's about God's faithfulness to his oath and his covenant to confirm his promises, which shows his incredible grace to fulfill those things despite their wickedness. And in verse 14 he says, Now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you get what he says there. He's saying, look, guys, this is great that we're here and everything, but you have to put away your idols. Can you believe that? Did you know that while they were conquering Canaan, the people were carrying their idols with them the whole time? The prophets will much later reflect back on this, and God will say, even in Egypt, they were told to let go of their idols, and they never did. They never let go of their idols. Look at how the people respond. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way which we went and among all the people through whom, whose midst we, we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the prophets, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Sounds really good. But look at how Joshua then responds. Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. So, Joshua says, look, what you said sounds good. God's not buying it. Because in their response, you know what they did not do? You know what they did not do? They didn't acknowledge that they had idols. They said, whoa, 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 whoa. Far be it from us. And again, they reaffirmed they're going to serve the Lord. Now look at what verse 23, Joshua says, Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at verse 24. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God. We will obey his voice. It's like, okay, okay, but what about your idols? They lacked the grit. Grace, another symptom of realizing grace, we will feel confident in the strength of the Lord to address deep, serious problems. This wasn't the only problem. For the sake of time, uh, we won't look at these verses to read them, but I'll, I'll show you where they are. Uh, Joshua 15:63. if you want to mark these in your Bible. These are territories where Israel left Canaanites in the land that they had been conquering. 15:63, uh, Judah left uh, the Jebusites, uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, in chapter 16, verse 10, Ephraim left Canaanites in Gezer. And in 17, verse 12, uh, Manasseh also left Canaanites uh, in various cities in their territory. I mean, not that big of a problem, right? I mean, they've got so much land. The Canaanites aren't really causing a problem anymore. Israel's really strong. Not a problem, right? Not a problem. That was dynamite lit at its wick, dropped in the middle of their nation, waiting to explode. And it did. That seed of leaving openness for what God said to totally destroy, destroyed them. Do not be deceived. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. If we're going to grow, here's what we can't do. We cannot say in our hearts, there's people here, you know, more people are moving in. Uh, it seems like everybody's growing in joy. I don't want to ruin the momentum by bringing up this problem I have. I don't want to have to kill the mood 
you know, by bringing up that there's actually something quite serious that is going on that I'm aware of, right? That thought is that lack of grit that comes from a lack of grace. See how you can easily justify those things, just like Israel could easily justify one city of Canaanites is not that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. There's that stick of dynamite. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. This is the most common problem in the New Testament churches. And again, is that, is that going to be us? That was Corinth, Galatia, it was Ephesus, eventually. Two other churches written in Revelation. Church John wrote to Second uh, Thessalonians. I mean, just over and over again, you have churches who are unwilling to deal with the deeper problem. Let me show you something interesting. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Although much of the Philippian letter is very positive and affirmative and energizing, there are also exhortations and warnings. Philippians chapter 4, I says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Well, that's awkward. Uh, Calling these people out by name, you know? Is it important, is it important that the women of this church have unity? Is it important for everyone here to have unity? Isn't it easy to think like, well, this lack of unity, as long as we have this general agreement among one another, this is well enough, fine. Best to leave well enough alone. We need to have harmony in the Lord. We've got to have grit. Otherwise, we read Israel's mistakes, we see their destruction, and we justify ourselves the whole time, and we look down on them and say, my, 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 what a mess, without looking at ourselves and seeing right here. Here's the mess. God's grace equips us to put an end to seeds of sin and bitterness. Do you believe that? God's grace equips us to have a love for one another that is liberated from worldly thinking, past grudges. But we've got to believe. We need to love God and be careful to walk in his ways. But we also need the warning to know that God is going to hold us accountable for our treatment of one another. A little leaven does leaven the whole lump of dough. I do get concerned. I do. And I think we all should. When we see things that in the group can impact our willingness to be fully devoted to one another. When we see attitudes that seem to contradict the kind of devotion we read of in scripture. And I struggle with what to say. And I struggle with knowing what's the best way to handle these things. So you could hear a lesson like this and say, well, Brian, all these principles, I don't see that lived out in you. You're right. You're right. Because with these things, God alone gets to be exalted. And in God being exalted, our task is to humble ourselves, be willing to repent, 
to trust him and do everything he says, knowing that his love so overwhelming and his strength so strong, his purpose so unfathomable will be with us. You know, the purpose of a lesson like this is not to step on toes. Um, If you think about that very much, it's really not a very biblical way to think about things, right? The purpose of God's word is to convict and change the heart, not to just step on toes and walk away and you forget about it, right? So what are we going to do? Who are we going to be? Can you imagine what God hopes this work to become? Can you imagine? Can you imagine in God's mind how possible it is for this church to become something it has never been before? Can you imagine how close it is in God's mind to establish men who can be shepherds? God does not promise things that he is not willing to fully equip his people to receive and perform. If you would, just for a minute, uh, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, your love is so great. You are such an amazing Father. Your church is such an amazing thing that you've bought and, and brought into the world. We love you. We love one another. And we want to grow. Please bless us, Father, that we would be motivated to strive to your purpose fully, wholeheartedly. Help us to have courage through faith. Help us to have perspective by faith. Help us to have strength through our faith. Help those who are demotivated to be motivated through faith. Those who are, uh, those who are fearful to become strong. Those who are disinterested in your will to become interested. Those who are hurt to be healed those who are broken to be rebuilt. Help those who are striving to be given the strength that they need to find renewed heart and courage. Just help our families to be strong. Help our families, Father, to be what they need to be to glorify your name. Help us to love one another. Help us, Father, to be everything you've called us to be and help us, God, to seek those things through the faith that glorifies you completely. In your son's name, amen. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, uh, God's building a living temple. And he's going to dwell in that temple forever. Outside of that temple, the promise of Scripture is very real. Those who are immoral, sexually unclean, sexually immoral, liars, thieves, covetous, greedy, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But God is freely inviting us to the death of his son to accept the invitation call to be put into that temple, to dwell with him and to behold his beauty. If there's anything we can do with you, come today while we stand and sing our invitation song.